We return to our Bringing Light into Darkness International Women's Day celebration. Okay, welcome Alternative News listeners. This is Bringing Light into Darkness. This is your host, Pedro Gatos. This is 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin, the premier community radio station of the nation. We are really blessed to continue our tribute in March to the issues connected to International Women's Month. I wanted to introduce to our listeners, you may have heard of Lynn Cowles on other shows, but it's a great privilege to have you finally on this show. I've been trying to drag yeah. you in here. Lynn has a long history of activism work, but she also has a PhD in English literature, which I found very interesting. And, yeah. and uh, <laughs> her main work efforts seem to be around her professional goals of working with people to improve communities by increasing access to quality health care and equal education and, and community resources and just generally equity issues. And I've been really impressed by your acumen in the many areas. We, we share some time in different subcommittees with Co-op Radio, including the Systemic Racism and Racial Justice Subcommittee. And your depth of understanding is, is really impressive, and I look forward to learning more in this short segment that we'll be doing with you today. Lynn has worked with women in helping industries, and she's also worked with women in the service industry and, and mm-hmm. just basic health equity issues. And I just wanted to open it up by asking you, just did a little segment on some of the issues concerning women in a, in a more macro level, at the world level, and your work. And I just, before we even go any further, I just want to commend you and others that do real activism, actually, and I, I'd like to start off with that to ask you the kind of work that you do with people in need in Austin, Texas, and with the COVID and non-COVID issues. First, yeah. th- first, thanks for being here. And secondly, can you share some of those experiences that you've seen firsthand? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Pedro, so much. Um, it's lovely to uh, to be talking with you in a kind of formal capacity here. And um, thanks so much for that really wonderful introduction and uh, just for your, your work also at, at Co-op and across the community, making sure that people, you know, know what kinds of resources and networks they have in this wonderful and sometimes fraught city and place that we live in. So I've been in Austin since 2008, um, which hasn't been a long time for folks who've, you know, grown up here. So I've, I've you know, over the past 15 years or so, I would say that I've 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 gotten really close to the Austin community enough such that when I finished grad school I decided to stay here rather than like go off and get an academic job somewhere else. And that's partly for reasons about you know the kind of general culture that people feel in Austin. Um live music is awesome. The the ways that you can just kind of like be around in the city and meet people um who you've never met before. People are friendly here. And there is a a really generous and productive helping community that exists around town in terms of the nonprofit organizations that people have started and, and work for, established ones, non-established ones, formal organizations, informal organizations, just all kinds of people really like banding together to make sure that folks are aware of issues that are uh, impacting their neighbors and their friends and their loved ones, and then to, you know, to make change about those issues as far as they affect direct people and, and the people who are in our lives and in our communities. And so the, the movements that I've seen uh, since the beginning of COVID-19 have very much been in that vein, the, the kind of general sense that I just mentioned in Austin in the past 15 years or so, which is just like folks recognizing what other people need or what they themselves need and banding together to, to find resources and to find means for folks to survive those situations, whatever they are. Those traumas and those trials have been exacerbated and, and kind of like laid bare, I think, by the COVID-19 crisis. 
so when, you know, we, we see the downtown uh, businesses and state offices shut down and then all of a sudden people who normally rely on folks walking around on streets for income because, you know, they don't they don't have homes, maybe they live in tents in places. Um, we saw pretty dire issues arise for, for those neighbors of mm-hmm. ours. And I was working with folks through my day job at Foundation Communities. And so the opportunities that folks who recently get out of homelessness or, or houselessness, people who find their ways into uh, either temporary or permanent housing, who find ways to get part-time or temporary jobs. So when people become financially or economically or domestically stable, they have different options for health coverage. And my, my job at Foundation Communities is in health coverage. So I was already tapped into different communities in Austin, like churches downtown, like ECHO, uh, the, the Coalition for Ending Homelessness in mm-hmm. Austin, a, a few different groups that were tapped into those populations and groups of people who didn't live, who live without homes. And so when the pandemic hit, when all the businesses shut down, there was just kind of like a mass chatter that was shared with me on my work email and on my personal email among folks who really were traditionally or historically invested in, in helping those folks out, making sure that they had access to clean water and to food and to tents if they needed tents. So when those folks, when we all started kind of like sharing resources and sharing uh, information about the statistics as far as like how long COVID was going to last and what the consequences of the pandemic were going to be, which seems really amazing now, just looking back, like we all thought that, you know, not, not everyone, but that it would be, it would last six months or yeah, a, few months. a year maybe. And yeah, right. So because there was that chatter and, and so I guess because there were already organized networks of people invested in, in those communities and invested in our own communities, that led to um, my involvement with groups like the Central Mission Project at Central Presbyterian Church and informal food pantry groups that would pick up excess groceries that got dropped off at food pantries like mm-hmm. at St. Vincent in North Austin. And then also with groups that just sprang up at the time. Like there's a kind of informal coalition of folks called uh, ATX Camp Support that I started working with to drop off groceries and, and meals and stuff to people who live under underpasses and to the increasing amount of people who live under underpasses. There's, yeah, not, enough, huh? there's not enough underpasses anymore. They're, they're everywhere because yeah. there's just no place to a tent under an overpass. It's just incredible, the, the, the explosion of homelessness. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, even though there is a federal moratorium on evictions that lasts until, I think, the, the end of April right now, right, right. Um, there, are, there are still lots of people whose landlords don't know about that, about that moratorium, or who otherwise haven't been abiding by it. And mm-hmm. there just really isn't enough state or federal oversight to, to be able to manage all those, all, all the landlords in the Central Texas area, uh, of course, like in the, in the United States, mm-hmm. to make sure that people are protected by those policies. Well, let me ask you this, because this COVID deal, and I think the, the UN, I forget his, 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 his name, but the UN leader there said it very well in one of these r- reports that Oxfam had quoted. And it basically was just saying this is like an, it, it's like an x-ray machine. It's really shown you the real nature mm-hmm. of the problem because it's exploded. But I think it's important to indicate that wealth disparity in this country was greater than it's ever been before COVID-19. That even under progressive, quote-unquote, democratic presidents like President Obama, it accelerated. So you had a system. In fact, I would argue that that's why Donald Trump won the presidency. There were so many people that were getting hit so hard. More people were living with their parents than in the history of this nation since the late 1800s where these statistics went mm-hmm. back to. Cause was, and so then on top of that, you have the COVID. But I think what's going to be the mantra by the establishment is that somehow 
everything was fine and then COVID hit and everything wasn't fine and people were really really hurting economically very very significantly and that can be shown empirically not to in any way minimize the incredible devastation that COVID-19 has reaped upon the world and such so you know your community organizing and and your your hand on the pulse of the Austin community is is just fascinating to me and I think somehow we've got to get that reality out there in front of folks do you find that it's not covered appropriately by the uh local media. What is your feeling in, in the last few minutes that we have? I'd like to know yeah. where, where do you go from here? Your knowledge base is huge, but experientially you're off the charts with this stuff. So I'm just really interested in, in your perspective on what needs yeah. to happen here. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And I think your question about the local media, I honestly, like, I, this is not a cop out at all. I just, i one of the ways that I've been kind of like dealing with information overload throughout the pandemic is by kind of reducing my um, my access to media or okay. my, my yeah. consumption of media. I'm not entirely sure how the local media has been covering. That's wow. That seems like a really egregious statement. Um, I don't I don't know how the local media has been covering um, really important issues in the last. Yeah year or so, just because I've been intentionally limiting my media coverage. But mm-hmm. what that does is it, though, allows me to, you know, have some bandwidth at the end of a work week to go out and take some meals out to the underpasses. You know, right. I feel like if yeah. I were really like consuming media and experiencing the, the full weight of the inequity that's happening globally and that's happening nationally, I don't know that I would really have it in me to go out on, on the weekends. And there are some people who are, are doing this work every day, who are like literally like making meals, like Food Not Bombs is making meals every day and people are taking it out to underpasses. And mm-hmm. those folks are like frontline heroes. But in, as far as your second question, which was what's the kind of like thing, thing to do here, what's, what's the actionable lesson from some of these experiences? I think the actionable lesson is whatever somebody's motivation is or whatever somebody's, somebody hears a story or an experience from a neighbor or a loved one and they're like, I wish I could do something. I think really the lesson is like, you can. Usually people are well-resourced enough or at least their communities are well-resourced enough to figure out like, if this is an issue that's important to me, like I can do something about it and in a very practical and tangible way. So if you like see somebody in public who, somebody who's panhandling and asking for a meal, like you could like have a bottle of water in your car and give it to that person or better yet, like, have a bunch of bottles of water and a bunch of granola bars in your car just so you can give those to people who might not have access to food and water otherwise. So there's really immediate things that folks can do very practically to work with their neighbors and their community members. And what that does is, on a very small scale, a community investment, right? But I think that it's important to recognize that those small community investments from individuals are incredibly important, but there's also a lot of work that needs to happen mm-hmm. from an advocacy level. So that yeah. means, and I, I'm not saying this like in a in like a, a crass or a, a sarcastic way, but like I really think that still calling our representatives is one of the best things that people can do to advocate for their neighbors. I don't think that people do that enough nowadays. And I know that talking on the phone is not always comfortable and you can also email your representatives. All of those interactions with public representatives are, are required to be recorded so that representatives know what their constituents are interested in and about. And like my state representative is Chip Roy and Chip Roy and I have like very little in common, but I know his staff member, Kevin, like really well, because I talk to Kevin on a pretty regular basis. Mm-hmm. So even though like my politics don't align with my state representative, like it's still important for people to make those very intentional moves, I think, to make sure that their representatives know on a political and policy based level what 
is important to them because otherwise they're never going to know. And there's just so many issues right now that although it can lead to a very strong and, and productive personal engagement with community to give a thirsty person a bottle of water, the, the real political change needs to happen. The policy-based change needs to happen in order for people to, to have access to equal resources, to have access to equal education, health, and so forth. So I think that the personal engagement is a really important motivating factor but the political engagement is what's going to make a difference for people in the big picture, whether it's for somebody who's interested in campaign finance reform, like, uh, you know, repealing Citizens United, or for someone who's right. interested in regular financial reform, like reinstating Glass-Steagall measures, like right. all of like, right. there's very specific things that can happen or not happen that people can advocate for. And I think sometimes people get a little bit like lost in the generality of the political process. And they just say like, oh, I don't want to just call my representative and say like, you know, my neighbors right. need clean water. But rather, you know, like find out what the structural problem is and advocate for that change. Right. Make that part of your phone call that it's an informed, the Glass-Siegel kind of issue or whatever mm -hmm. needs reforming, you know, come up with some solution oriented and you're well invested in the knowledge of it as well. You know, a couple of things struck me as you were speaking. One was just the human value of somebody rolling their window down and giving you a bottle of water or a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. That mm -hmm. compassion must, I think people that are struggling, you know, that they're, they're also starting of just human caring. And I think that part of it comes through when you do stop and talk to someone that's homeless. You can see, you know, you're not just racing by them. And instead of just the act of giving something, I think the receiving of it, they, they get more than what's being handed through that window. Also, I just wanted people to know that Lynn has been one of the, the co-authors and main authors of our COVID-19 updates and also has a show on Co-op Radio In Touch Interviews that occurs on Wednesday. You know, y'all have done a lot of great outreach on that show. I just wanted to ask you one, one last question, and that was just if people want more information about some of the things that you've been speaking to, what are some of the informational conduits that you think are important that give out the type of information that's really not well known in the community? Oh, right on. Um, well, uh, first of all, thanks so much to Greg Ciotti. Big shout out to Greg, who is my partner in InTouch Interviews. And Greg is an amazing programmer and, uh, and a wonderful source of knowledge and, and guidance also. So thanks yeah. thanks so much to him. He really um, is. Mm -hmm. And I, I think um, in terms of like information sources or, or, or venues, the first 15 minutes of Democracy Now!, I try to listen to every weekday. I don't always get to it. But I, I do try to listen to the first 15 minutes, like the, the introduction to Democracy Now! on a regular basis. Um, Amy Goodman and Juan Gonzalez, who co of that show. They do a really good job of highlighting uh, really important movements in community building and democratic, like real democratic processes across the globe that are, are that are so important. Like, for instance, the massive disparities in, in COVID-19 vaccinations across the world. Right now, one of the most vaccinated countries in on the planet is Israel, and one of the least vaccinated countries on the planet is Palestine, I right know, next to right it. Right next. Yeah, right next door. Um, and so that's the kind of real awareness of disparity and the lack of equity that I think really keeps me in touch with global politics is democracy now. In general, I mean, as far as local stuff goes, I keep in touch with, and so don't use Slack, it's, it's an app that you put onto your phone and you join certain communities based on interests. And so I am a part of the Austin Justice Coalition Slack and the Austin Mutual Aid Slack. And those Very two good. Slack channels are really important sources for information about like what's directly affecting our community members on the ground every day. Very good. Well, we've had the great privilege of visiting with Lynn Cowles and she is is a big part of, as she said, her and Greg have been working since the beginning of COVID, just 
putting out informative reports. Greg was going to all of the meetings and reporting back and stuff. I just felt like that representation of, of COVID-19 in the community has been of a unrivaled level when I'm looking at other sources that are reporting on it. I want to thank you so much for all the work that you do yeah. in the community and look forward to uh, staying connected and, and, and having you back on. There's so much more to talk about. Thank you on International yeah. Women's Day for being such an internationalist and a localist. Awesome. I appreciate that. Thanks so much for having me, Pedro. It's really, really an honor to be on uh, Bring Light into Darkness. We now turn to our final segment with Reshmi Chowdhury. Okay, we're now joined with a very special guest. That would be Reshmi Chowdhury, and she is with our community council. She also has been part of our subcommittee from the community council on systemic racism and racial justice. And it's a great pleasure to have Reshmi on the show tonight as part of our International Women's Focus. She's a sociologist, a public health researcher, and educator. Um, she is an, an executive board member of the Austin Asian Community Health Initiative. Importantly for our conversation, she also received her master's in public health. She also uh, has a master's in sociology. And her main professional goal is to work with people to improve communities by increasing access to quality health care, equal education, and community resources. So it's a great pleasure to have a colleague and a very astute scholar on the show. Reshmi, welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness. Thank you, Pedro. It's my pleasure to be with you in beautiful show. Yeah, listen, we had a, a horrific incident that occurred on the 16th of March in which mm -hmm. eight Asian Americans were murdered and uh, six of them women. And I, I wanted to just start off by first asking you to describe how this uh, incident affected you as an Asian American woman and also as a professional, what are your feelings about getting at the, at the cause of these horrific and senseless loss of life? So thank you again, uh, Pedro, for this question. And uh, during this uh, difficult time uh, when the whole community is healing uh, from a, a very horrific incident, of course, there is a lot to think and talk about and a lot to feel in particular. I, as an Asian American woman, how I got, how I perceived this incident, how it impacted uh, me and my personal well-being, uh, I could certainly talk a little bit about that. First, uh, first of all, I I was born and grew up in in Bangladesh, which is a country in the South Asian region of Asia. As you mentioned in my uh, intro, that I worked uh, with the Asian American community here in the uh, United States and in Canada for many years, uh, last 12 years, with uh, diverse Asian American communities. A majority part of them are first-generation immigrants and second-generation youth as well. So I grew the understanding of how I connect my own identity with the other Asian American community members and how we all connect up as immigrants and then we contribute and merge with the North American society uh, in, a, in a productive and a positive way. Uh, this incident that happened on March 16th, uh, just a little more than a week ago, when I first heard about this incident, the first thing that impacted me is simply as a human being, it is an incident of gun violence. And those of us who live in in United States, and we know that how gun violence has become uh, such a common incident in uh, common occurrence here in our society, 
and gun violence is a public health issue. And uh, then, uh, then this incident, it, it collided with a number of things. Uh, say, for example, first I let me say how I connect with it, because when I heard uh, eight people were killed and six of them were Asian-Americans, and four of them were Korean-Americans. So, of course, it uh, hit me hard because um, I, uh, I, as an Asian-American community member, uh, certainly I reflected on my own safety, my family's safety. Since during this COVID pandemic time, we have observed that there are skyrocketing number of incidents, and the statistics is there that uh, how Asian-Americans hate crime has, has been reported. And there are a lot of underreported and unreported incidents that we got to know. We need to think critically, like when the schools are uh, there uh, are uh, happening uh, virtually, uh, how these Asian-American families are doing from their mental health and well-being viewpoint. So, Reshmi, what you are saying, what further complicates the impact of these deaths on the Asian American community is the present situation of kids going to school virtually and therefore are denied being around their peers to process these problems together? The children who are not coming to school, how they're perceiving this, the anxiety and how they are perceiving the whole sense of isolation and sense of safety. being at home or coming out in public. So these are some uh, important things. Uh, Me being a a social and behavioral health researcher, I think it is very important uh, to explore how the Asian American community are doing, committee members are doing mentally uh, Mm -hmm. during this isolation time. And then uh, these uh, incidents of hatred uh, happen and that it it creates more, uh, more pressure on these families. So, Reshmi, you have an academic and experiential background in this subject of how racism impacts Asian Americans. And also, being a woman, what is the overall messaging you can give our audience regarding this subject? Me being a woman, and I have a background of uh, conducting research on women who are involved in in sex industry and different stigmatized profession. When I heard first that the women who were a victim of this incident, they work in in a spa uh, massage center. Mm-hmm. And later we learned that they are small business owners, they're clients, and they they are business women who were present there. Uh, however, when the incident was reported, um, it first came from the police authority that the person, the 21-year-old 20 white man, he informed the police officer that he identified these places as something, a place, quote-unquote place, that he went to diminish those places to take control of his uh, sexual well-being. Right. So that uh, kind of made many of us who work on, on gender issues and working class women and women uh, who are engaged in different professions, that made us to think that how certain professions are perceived in the society and how stereotypes work around those uh, those professions and how that uh, that impacts the broader population the young population in the American society. So it is very important to understand that Asian American women who come to the United States and they start their business and they, they later we learn that they, these are all legal business and, and a spa center 
Massa Center, it kind of got conflicted with the perception of sex work, which was an absolutely wrong, uh, problematic uh, correlation uh, in a modern society, a cosmopolitan society where we live. So it is uh, altogether, there are some problematic connections that was built during, the, I mean, in this incident that created some social narrative. And uh, I was following this social narrative uh, from my personal viewpoint and also through the lens of the work and profession I get involved. So as I mentioned that Asian American women, uh, there are uh, reasons why there is a structural racism context and there are and other uh, day-to-day, I mean, interpersonal racism mm-hmm. context that are involved when they are engaged uh, in the public space and when they work in public places like the massage parlor. Well, when we kind of uh, backed up on time here a little bit, but I, I wanted you to also very briefly in the, mm-hmm. next, in the next minute, if you can do it in, in a short period of time, but where, where do we go from here? I think you've elucidated a lot of very clear issues that are connected to institutional racism, and it's just so sad that different people from different parts of the world feel the same psychic pain, and not that, it, uh, that we have a simple solution, but what do you think is important for folks that are interested in trying to reduce this type of uh, chance of behaviors in the future? What, what can they do? Thanks for the question, Pedro. It is the, first of all, we should uh, have a clear understanding how racism and day-to-day interpersonal racism and both and structural racism impact the mental health and well-being of the minority community in a society. And by that, I mean that how it impacts the brain health and their productivity and performance of the population group. So it is very critical to combat Mm -hmm. uh, bullying and the day-to-day racism and structural racism in a very systematic way, of course, through a lot of policies, uh, changes, and uh, proactive actions. And here I I have another insight about it, that uh, since we talk about gun violence here, you know, I mean, being an Asian American woman, I can say that Asian Americans mostly we come from agrarian societies. Our uh, our predecessors were uh, they come from farming culture. So and and you know the the societies that have got farming culture, they also possess a lot of traditional matriarchal values. So as immigrants, in fact, we have lost wisdom in terms of how to combat violence and lead a life without the presence of lethal weapons and guns. Mm-hmm. And I personally think that if we immigrants from Asia and other countries, we uh, more uh, proactively get involved in the civic process and activities and the social uh, movements in this progressive social movements in mm-hmm. this country. We mm-hmm. have uh, a lot of wisdom to offer to this, uh, to this beautiful land and, and uh, in terms of finding a, a peaceful, uh, peaceful life where we wouldn't necessarily respond to to another community member with the help of uh, lethal women, there are hatred and there are disagreements. But uh, and and uh, how to combat all of all of those? Uh, not to use uh, excessive violent behavior. That is a long term goal. Uh, but here, I personally think that those of us who come from different other societies, we we have a lot of wisdom to bring to this mm-hmm. country. Uh, yeah, I hope we get involved more uh, in from that viewpoint. Yeah, and I and I just want to. It's such a sad 
deal that the fear that must be instilled in people of color, you know, in all people of color is just, you know, more and more graphic, I think, over the last couple of years, for whatever reasons, whether it's a crisis of the wealth inequality or whatever. But thank you for bringing some light into the nature and the traditional history of Southeast Asians and the Asian American experience. We've had the great pleasure of visiting with Reshmi Chowdhury, and we look forward to digesting the very valuable contributions that you just made. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Bedro. Please stay tuned for Emo Diaries coming up next. Don't touch that dial. See you next week.